This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Picked a good week to enter the spirit realm. It's episode 486 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Thank you so much for tolerating the delay in the podcast this week. There's been stuff going on behind the scenes that made it. So I had to put out the episode a day later, but it's okay. We're here now talking about the spirit glass with author Roshni Chukchi. Of course, you know her from so many amazing New York Times bestsellers. Now she's back with this. Is it going to be a one-off story? about the spirit realm and all these other interesting things and Filipino culture. I'll talk to her about this young adult novel that she's got that, that is out right now from Rick Redham Presents. Also going to talk about Star Trek Lower Decks, the season four premiere. Going to go ahead and review The Boogeyman from 20th Century Studios, which came out on Digital HD not too long ago. And Warner Brothers being Warner Brothers again. There's a ton of nerd news and I might you know go on a little bit of a rant on Warner Brothers, if you don't mind, and you you probably don't. So a lot to get to this week. Let's get it started. I'm going to talk to Roshni Chakshi about the Spirit Glass. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Alex Irvine, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's a really good book that you need to check out. It's called The Spirit Glass from McRiordan Presents, and you're going to know this name regardless, but she's got something new out. It's like something completely new, and I couldn't wait to talk to her about it. It's Roshni Chakshi. Roshni, how you doing? Hello, thank you for having me today. Okay, so you've had this very successful Pandava series. You had four books from that. And now people are like, okay, is there going to be more? And here you are throwing us a curveball and giving us something completely different. So why was now the time to kind of shake things up for you? Oh, boy. You know, I think... Gosh, you're really hitting me hard with the first question. Why did I do this to myself? <laughs> the, the truth is I, I've i been promising my mom that I was going to write her a story with Filipino folklore and mythology for years. Because, you know, in growing up, I was fed on Hindu myths and Hindu folklore, but I was also told a lot, a lot of stories about the Filipino culture, about the gods and goddesses. And yet for me, there was a lot more research involved with this than there ever was for Arusha. And at the time of writing it, I had just finished the Bandava series and I just found myself in this sort of 
in this space where I needed to do a lot of soul searching and the spirit glass was the perfect avenue for that. It is a softer, spookier tale. It's one of heartbreak and grief and I needed it so, so much. And it came at the perfect time. And it sounds like a perfect title too. If that's kind of what you're going for, that's it. You certainly hit the nail on the head. <laughs> that one. Now talk about that Filipino heritage for a second, because there's certainly a lot of rich heritage there and, and the Filipino the heritage as it deals with the afterlife and spirits and things like that. How yeah. much did you kind of learn about your a part of your own heritage while you were doing this? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think I researched for about a year and wow. there was so much that I learned. Oops. Hey, excuse me. Oh gosh. I'm, I'm getting a little nervous. You know, that thing where you sneeze, like someone has walked over your grave or something. And now that we're talking about a spooky tale and all the allergies <laughs> are acting up, I don't know if that means a horde of ghosts are descending upon my final <laughs> place, but if they are, don't trample the flowers. Okay. All right. So a lot of what I learned and a lot of what made writing Arusha and the spirit glass vastly different experiences is colonialism. And the reason for that is when the British Raj came and conquered India, a lot of those Sanskrit epics were very well preserved and they were translated and all that kind of stuff. Then you have the flip side of versus what the Spaniards did in the Philippines. When they ruled it for 400 years, they decimated native religions. They kicked out the shamans. They kicked out the spirit guides, the Babylons, which are what Corazon and her aunt are. And one of the things that I learned the most about is just sort of how colonialism casts a very long shadow over folklore and mythology. I may know the names of Filipino deities the way that I do about Hindu deities, but I don't know the pantheon to the extent that I do with Hindu stories. And a lot of that just is simply about how it was recorded, translated, and preserved. And we talk a lot about how ghost stories are are things that seem just spooky things to scare us in the dark. But for me, I've come to think of ghost stories as heirlooms. You know, they are heirlooms. They are what's passed down by the people whose voices were stolen away. And maybe this is all they have left. It's what appears in their monsters. It's what appears in their superstitions. And that's a lot of what I learned. It was, uh, it was learning a lot about a legacy of pain and horror and trying to find a lot of beauty still within that. Well, that is absolutely incredible. Now you talked about your your main character, your protagonist here, Corazon. I feel like that name is not an accident by any stretch of the imagination. So tell anybody about tell everybody about her a little bit that hasn't already dove into the story. Yeah. So, well, the name actually comes from my mother's side. It's the name of my great aunt. And one thing that's really interesting is when people hear of a protagonist named Corazon Lopez, they don't think that the character is Filipino. They no. Think this person Spanish. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, you know, exactly as you said, I picked that name as a nod to colonialism um, uh, and as a way of showing how that domination was so complete, but it also has a lot of some symbolic uh, weight. Corazon means heart. And a lot of this story has a lot of heartbreak within it. And one thing that's always fascinated me um you know, long before I had, uh, long before we had our daughter, and then even after she got here, this idea that when you love someone so much, it's like your heart is existing outside of yourself. And so that's one of the reasons why her name is what it is. Three kids at home and a wife. I could certainly understand what you're talking about when it comes to Three that. Kids? Yeah. We just, our little girl is three months and she's not really sleeping through the night. So maybe that's, yeah. I'm, I'm just losing my mind. Yeah. Losing 
<laughs> yeah, I've got a, I got a couple tips for you. We'll talk. We'll talk here in a minute. We'll talk after you guys. Tell me how to live. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to Roshni Chakshi, who's, of course, the author of The Spirit Glass, which you can get from Rick Riordan presents right now, wherever books are sold. Now, Roshni, I want to talk about and this may be the only spoiler I, I'll give, but it's not really a spoiler because it's in the description of the book. So I don't feel too bad about this. So <laughs> Coruscant, she has this key. She can kind of see her parents whenever she wants, even though that they've passed, which is an incredible part of the story in its own. But then you have this pesky ghost that takes it and that takes that away from her as well. How big of a part of the story is that aspect? Because it's almost to me like a now you got to grieve all over again sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, you know, that was one of my favorite parts, ironically, to write about the story. I mean, when we think about children's literature, these parents are always dead or absent or awful. That is very true. <laughs> like, how can you possibly have a well-chaperoned mythological adventure? Um, and so I wanted to, one, I wanted to nod to that. Yes, the parents are dead, but they are still loving and involved parents. Um, and then with the spirit key, that's the way that Corazon is still able to see her parents once a week. And of course, it's not enough. And, and that's why she's so desperate for her powers to mature so that she can bring them back from the dead. And when that ghost steals her spirit key, one thing that was really important to me was giving a voice to these monsters. And it's a lot about when we think about the legacy of pain and what makes somebody do monstrous things. Oftentimes we keep coming back to that very well-repeated phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. I can think of nothing more tragic than that sentence. And it was something that I really wanted to explore in the book. So the ghost, whose name is Florida Lisa, you will find that there, although she is monstrous, there's a lot more to her than that. And I think one of the biggest journeys for Corazon, not just through the Filipino other world, is a, a journey of compassion and a journey of empathy and realizing how much she actually has in common with this rather gruesome character. Absolutely. I want you to talk about the, 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 the balance that she has, Corazon, in her relationships with her parental figures. And I say that because she's got her parents, but then she also has her aunt Tina. And you talk about how loving the parents are aunt Tina, different approach to love, I think. So talk about that push and pull for her a little bit. Yeah. So aunt Tina is her mom's sister and it's her legal guardian. And aunt Tina is of course, keeping many, many, many secrets. Oh, of course. And the thing about Tina that's very different is She's not loving. She's not warm. She's not affectionate. She won't give her hugs. The person in Corazon's life who gives her all of that sort of warmth and affection that a child needs and deserves is the house, the house that she lives in, which seems to be alive. It's the house that tucks her in at night. It's the house that grows nightlights when she has nightmares. Um, and I really, you know, one thing that's always like the biggest misconception for us as children is that adults have all the answers and that adults are flawless human beings um, who know exactly what they're doing. And yet the older I get, the more I see adults who are struggling so much with their own inner child, with their own need to feel safe, that we never, we are never far behind from that six-year-old version of ourselves that just wants to be told that everything's going to be okay. So that's what made Tina a very interesting character to write um, because in many ways, they both just want the same thing. They just go about it in very different ways. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk about world building for a second because obviously you've written a book or two or 50, so you certainly <laughs> know something about world building. But when you're talking about world building in the spirit world too, and especially yeah. since it's not like you have an artist 
in this book that can just bring this to life for you. You have to kind of describe all of these areas that they're going on in this adventure. How challenging is that for you to sort of try and, okay, I've got this in my head. Now I need to build it out on the page. You know, it's, it's a curious thing there. There's a lot of, a lot of my close friends, you know, who are writers as well. I feel like, you know, the way they talk about writing is as if they're watching this movie and they're just frantically writing down everything that they can see. Um, For me, I feel like a lot of what's guiding me is emotion. And um, it's like the feeling that I'm trying to chase first and then realize what would that look like externalized, right? So a place like the the spirit market and the the midnight bridge where Corazon and her aunt go to sell potions and magic spells to the denizens of the Filipino other world, I knew that I wanted it to feel dark and spooky and a place that is straddling this fine line between beauty and horror. And so that's what made me think about the bridge itself being made of woven midnights. This idea, like midnight is just such, it's the witching hour, right? It's the spooky time where we're in between one day and the next. And so that was a really fun idea of how to make this magic um, really come to life. Like what would that really look like? So that lets you play with more whimsical uh, settings. Excellent. Excellent. I love stories like this because there always seems to be this sassy character that's like your ride or die companion for your main character. And you certainly have that with Sasso, the the, the oh, gecko. And it's just such a fun character. So how much fun is a character like that to write? Because I cracked up a few times reading, reading some some Sasso stuff. Oh, gosh. Sasso's hilarious. I mean, so uh, gosh, how do I explain it? So um, a lot of the Babylons much like the Western idea of witches, they have their familiars. So Babylons have companion Anitos and Anitos are the spirits that have waterfalls, bodies of water, um, mountains, that sort of thing, trees. And the more powerful the Babylon is, the more powerful, aggressive, and big the companion Anito is. So for Corazon, whose powers have not come into uh have not emerged yet. Her companion Anito is Sasso, who for all intents and purposes looks just like a polka dotted gecko. However, when Sasso looks at Sasso, he sees a rare, precious baby crocodile. He sees an apex predator. He sees a bloodthirsty monster. And it's just really fun to write those contradictions. You know, like it's just, it's really, really, it, it makes me laugh. Um, things like that. Like, you know, you imagine some huge man-eating serpent, but maybe like their biggest regret in life is that they can't buy shoes at all. And they just have this designer collection of left feet. Like, I'm just like, oh God, I'm so jealous. Um, for me, those are really fun places, uh, spaces to play in. And it's children's literature makes that uh, very welcoming. Oh, absolutely. Before I let you go, Roshni, I have to ask because people are going to ask about this once they get done with it. Is there more here? Because I feel like this isn't kind of it. Do you feel like there's more to this story that you could tell? I don't think so. You know, it was a really, really deeply personal story to write. And I think so often with a lot of my books, I'm asking myself a question and I'm seeing how long it takes me to get to the answer, right? Arusha required five books to get to the to the answer. Uh, the Gilded Wolves needed three books, but the spirit glass, there's only ever really one question I'm asking. And it's how do we make peace with the unknown? And it's a very, very short answer. And I hope that the world feels complete. I hope the story haunts readers in the best way possible, but I think I've said all I've needed to say about Corazon's world for now. 
And that's why you need to get this story and enjoy it because it might be the only one you get from these characters. The Spirit Glass from Rick Rowden presents. Make sure you're getting it wherever books are sold. If you want to do the digital thing, you can do that as well. But you got to have that book in your hand as far as I'm concerned. You got you, you to get these pages turned for you and your kids and so you can read it together. Roshni Chakshi, thank you so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. To me, one of the things that's going to hit you about this book right away is definitely the characters that are in here. There's there's certainly a, a, a lot of fun to be had. I mean, we're talking about some serious stuff in the spirit realm and other things like that. But at the same time, there's, there is plenty of fun that's had in this book as well. And just going through the spirit world, it's a different kind of adventure. And this is the kind of young adult novel that has some really cool cultural aspects to it. And, and getting into the spirit world and getting it a little bit spooky without being too spooky and having just this depth of storytelling that I was just really, really surprised about when I was reading The Spirit Glass. So make sure you're getting your copy from Rick Riordan Presents wherever books are sold. And maybe this is going to make you want to check out Roshni Chakshi's other books as well because she's got plenty. She's a New York Times bestseller so many times over for a reason. Trust me on that. Again, thank you so much to Roshni Chakshi for joining me to talk about The Spirit Glass. Up next, going to dig into some reviews. How about we'll talk about the season four premiere of Star Trek Lower Decks. We'll do that with some spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, this is writer Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Heading back down below, Star Trek Lower Deck Season 4, now streaming on Paramount+. Plus, and I thought I'd give a little bit of a review of the first couple of episodes that dropped this past week. I don't want to do anything for Episode 3 yet because, you know, of course, you know, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody that hasn't gotten a chance to get caught up yet. But, you know, I say Lower Decks, but maybe not Lower, lower Decks, maybe not for too much longer because... There's some promotions that are going on here, and that's maybe a little bit of a spoiler for the first couple of episodes, but those have been out, so I don't feel so bad about that. But a lot of ensigns coming, Lieutenant JG's in this thing, right? And, well, at least it seems that way in this first episode, of which is Tuvix of Season 4, and that you know kind of reminds everybody of a classic Voyager story. And I think it's cool that they had the Voyagers like this. They were going to turn it into a museum, and it kind of gets messed up a little bit because of something in, in in the transporter and then you see all of these different you know blended characters and things like that are that are kind of fused together and they have to try and figure out 
what to do about it. So I thought that that was a really fun story. And then you've got Boimler, who, again, a little bit of a spoiler here, he was told, you know, he's he's going to be getting promoted. And it was just a comedy of errors of, you know, him maybe not being promoted. And then he was worried, is there going to be some tension with Mariner? And that you sort of find out that that's why maybe he was holding back a little bit and making so many mistakes. And they have a really nice moment in this first episode of season four that kind of takes that tension away, which I thought was, was really neat. I thought that was a cool thing that they did to kind of, you know, put that story to rest a little bit. But what's also really funny about this is that at the end of the episode, and, and again, spoiler alert here, but this is something you just, you know, just have to be prepared for when the episode's been out for over a week. But when Mariner gets promoted too, that's when it's weird, right? Because she wasn't expecting to be promoted. And that kind of leads us into the next episode, but I'll get to that in a second, but this Voyager episode was really fun to, to kind of go through the ship. And there's winks and nods here and there. If you're a Voyager, Star Trek Voyager fan, this is something that it's real. This is going to be an episode you're really going to enjoy. It's there's some really good Easter eggs and winks and nods to the Voyager and things like that. So I think that this is something that you would certainly enjoy. And then we get to see, you know, something happening between you know Rutherford and Boimler and and, and Mariner. Maybe there's Still some tension there between the three of them. But then you also get to see how this team comes together, right? And how they sort of work together, why they are such a great team in the first place. So that this first episode sort of highlights that. And you then you sort of start to wonder, well, you know, maybe... Because if you get promoted from Ensign, right, you're not necessarily lower decks anymore, right? I mean, you're still like a junior grade lieutenant, but at the same time, you're not specifically lower deck. So it's like, you know, our crew of the Cerritos growing up a little bit. So that was kind of fun to see. And I loved uh, Captain Freeman's part in this Voyager episode. I think that was really fun because we sort of, you know, get to see her get in the mix a little bit there. I don't really want to spoil everything because I know the episode's been out, but I don't feel like I want to spoil everything about it. But but there's also some interesting things with with, with Tiana and, and, and Shax and things like that. So... Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's a, it was a really good episode, and then the second episode as we get, as we go on over to that, where you know it's a, it's a, supposed to be a standard mission to kind of get these humans that are stranded on this on this ship. That's basically it's basically a floating zoo, for lack of a better way of putting it. So they have to go. That you've got Captain Ransom who's supposed to go up there, or you've got Jack Ransom who's supposed to go up there, and Mariner thinks that he's trying to string her along and he's just going to demote her anyway. So she kind of cruises through the mission thinking she's going to be demoted. And instead it's basically ransom trying to make sure she doesn't do things like that. And again, it's a comedy of errors in the second episode of season four and things get way out of hand when they absolutely shouldn't be. And I love that Boimler, cause you have to move your quarters when you get promoted, right? So when they move them up to a different room, every time he gets a room, it's that classic, every room has a problem for a different reason, and the reasons are just so freaking hilarious that I love. I'll be honest, when they first announced Lower Decks, I thought, okay, how's this really going to work? Is it just going to be goofy? Is it just going to be silly? Is it still going to feel like Star Trek sort of thing? And they've just found a way over the course of these four seasons to make it not only make sense, make it not only sort of connect to other Star Trek series and, and the history and things like that, but they've made it in such a fun way, but also keeping the, 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 you know, neat science fiction nature 
of the show. So I don't don't know how McMahon, Kurtzman and company, how they're doing it. But I got to tell you, this writing team is spectacular. And yeah, I pay these people. But this writing team is spectacular for this show. And I mean, the animation's fun too. Uh, The the character designs are always fun, especially when you get to some of the more alien aspects. I'm just thinking you get to see different species and creatures and things like that. But then there's also the fact that you've got standalone episodes, but you also have this overlying theme of the season too. And that is that there's, there's a ship out there that seems to be just able to randomly disable and destroy other ships. So like, so, and it's very subtle. They're not focusing on it too much yet, but I can't imagine this is something that's just going to go away anytime soon. So I'm going to be looking for more of that as the season sort of starts to unfold. And when I say take down ships, I mean, first we saw a, we saw a Klingon vessel already get taken down. So this is pretty serious stuff. And this is something that could, you know, like have all out war ramifications, depending on where they decide to go with this thing. you know, I'm sure the Cerritos is going to be in center stage of this at some point. We'll have to wait and see, but yeah, Star Trek lower decks definitely already been a fun season just in a couple of episodes and I just, I've just enjoyed the heck out of this show. I hope that you are too. And I think you know, the fact that it's gone four seasons already kind of tells me that, you know, people are watching the thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep making them. But yeah, Star Trek Lower Decks, so much fun. They actually poke fun at the live action appearance that, that happened during Star Trek Strange New Worlds as well. And they, they said, you know, we're not supposed to talk about that sort of thing. So this is the kind of show that sort of breaks the fourth wall at times too. And that's one of the things that again makes it fun and just this cast together and these characters together they found a way to just find a really really fun group to bring together and you want and you just want them to be together forever right you want them to all be promoted together you all you want them to all go up in the ranks together it's like when you've got that group of friends whether it's work friends or friends from school or things like that you all kind of want to you know have these big life moments together and life doesn't always work that way sort of thing so there is a true to life aspect to this show as well. And you wouldn't think that coming from some, from a show like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, but yep, they've certainly found a way to figure that out. That's going to do it for my review of the first couple of episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Up next, we'll talk about The Boogeyman, the spooky new movie from 20th Century Studios. We'll talk about it next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, the writer of Micronauts, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This one might make you want to sleep with the lights on. The Boogeyman is now in digital HD from 20th Century Studios. I want to let you know they gave me a free copy of this thing for review. All opinions here are my own. And yeah, this one was out in theaters. I think it was like in June. And I would say this is more horror thriller than horror. Of course, this is based on the work of Stephen King. And I mean, there is some horror elements to it, obviously, but it feels like more of a thriller throughout than horror because you do have the creature which is the boogeyman and I'll throw a couple spoilers in here maybe just but just in case you've been waiting to see if this is worth seeing I won't spoil everything but obviously you have the boogeyman that does make an appearance in this thing and the character design you either love it or you hate it I'm just going to say that to you right now you're it's going to be one of those things where you're either going to think it's great or you think it's going to it's going to be stupid or something that's that's you know just wasn't done properly I thought it was simple but I didn't and and I thought that you know, maybe you could have overdone a little bit more, but it was more of like the mystique of the of the character than the actual appearance of the character that I think that they got right. And this is a this, this is a family who you know they they lost their mother in a car accident. You have a young teenage girl. You have her young sister. So you've got Sadie, who's the teenager. You've got her sister Sawyer, 
and their dad, Will Harper. And the one thing that I think they did extremely well in this movie is that the dad is a therapist. So it's interesting in that we have this underlying theme of, you know, how you're dealing with a tragic loss throughout the family and the fact that, you know, he's a therapist, so he isn't necessarily grieved either. And you've also got this, you know, obviously there'd be a lot of, a lot of, you know, sadness in this house and the boogeyman sort of feeds off of that. So it's almost the perfect place to be, but there was this classic horror movie slash thriller thing that always drives me crazy. And I'm going to spoil this because I have to get this off my chest. So as a therapist, he sees clients at his house. He works works from home. That's fine. So there's this guy that comes in. Lester Billings is the character's name. Dave Desmolchin plays him brilliantly, by the way. Just a very quick appearance from Dave Desmolchin, but it's so, so worth it. And he lets this guy into his house, and this guy's clearly, you know, like not necessarily off his rocker because that's therapists are supposed to help people that, you know, are, are, are mentally ill. But this guy was like, you could tell there was something different about him, dangerous, maybe not a guy you want having in your house. And that's how things sort of start to go off the rails for this family because he lets this dude into his house. And I guess once he's in, he's in. There's not really a whole lot you could do about it. And he sort of realizes, hey, this guy might be a little bit dangerous, so I might want to do something about it. But it also ends up in another tragic event for the family. And that's all I'll kind of say about it. And it definitely makes things worse on a couple of different fronts. So I'll go, I'll kind of go with that aspect. So it kind of drives me nuts where it's like, you could tell like right away in the beginning, you're saying out loud to, to the screen that you're watching this on. You're like, don't let him in the house. Don't let him in. Oh, you let him in the house. What are you doing? Sort of thing. So that's, that was kind of frustrating. Had to get it, had to get it off my chest. Feel a little bit better now, but yeah. It, it, and then you sort of see how things unfold from there. Ironically enough, first of all, the the character of Sadie was brilliantly done by by Sophie Thatcher, Vivian L- Lyra Blair, who you remember from Obi Wan Kenobi. She was young Leia, does a, an amazing job as Sawyer in this thing. So it was the it was the two kids I felt like were the real highlights of this movie. Chris Messina was was the dad was okay. He was it, it was very level performance. I thought he did well, but the two girls definitely stand out in this thing for me anyway. So it's what what's interesting to me is is that it was the beginning part of the movie where it's the setup and it's the initial, you know, what is this thing and the bo- the boogeyman where as they're sort of trying to figure this out and trying to figure out, you know, whether they believe Sawyer or not, whether they believe the young girl or not. Sort of thing or is it just all in her head? Is it is it based on stuff? That, that, that has happened recently in the accident with her mom and things like that. And that's why the dad being a therapist was such a brilliant pick because obviously the therapist is going to go to try and figure out some sort of psychological explanation for what's going on and who would think that, you know, the uh, monsters actually exist sort of thing. And even the older sister has a little bit of trouble with it in the beginning as well. But that's where the movie was at its best. It wasn't until we started getting towards the end and the climax of the movie and actually dealing with a boogeyman where you started sort of to start of kind of lose me a little bit because it came very cliche, it became very tropey and things like that, I thought. And he's watching this family unravel when it didn't have to unravel the way that it did. And there was there's another therapist that's involved in this as well, which is more like the a family therapist that the family talks to. And that's where it sort of got unraveled for me. Even and even the climax of the movie when they're dealing 
with the boogeyman itself in the moment, it just seemed sort of, I don't want to say easy, because that's, that's not fair, I don't think, but I feel like you're not breaking any new ground here. Maybe that's not the point, especially if you're, you know, adapting something, right? If you're, if you're going through, you know, this is based on the work of Stephen King, but at the same time, you could take, I think there's certain creative liberties, that you could take, right? Or at least I could, I could see that. So I thought that the the setup for this was was well done. I thought that the execution in the beginning was well done. I thought they did a really good job leaning on the character aspects and and you know why it might not necessarily be believable and why it took so long to be believable, sort of thing. And the grief of the family and how that factored in. I thought that was a little, at least a little bit different coming from that aspect but at the same time once you got down to it and once we actually got to the point where okay let's deal with this monster sort of thing ironically enough that's where I feel like things sort of got lost a little bit and and could have been executed maybe not necessarily better but at least more unique especially if you're going to do something like this if you're going to do a boogeyman story which let's face it has been done regardless of, of of what work it's based on we've had boogeyman stories before if you're going to do this, you've got to bring something new and different and unique to the table. And I feel like you half did that. So you got me halfway there and then didn't bring it home. It's like leading the race for the entire time and then falling off at the end. It's like it's, this one didn't quite have the legs to finish as good as it started. Is it a complete disaster? I don't think it's a complete disaster. And I, I certainly think that this is, if you're a fan of the genre anyway, and it's probably worth seeing, but there are going to be things about this, I'm going to warn you now, that are going to be frustrating for you for a couple of different reasons, especially as we had towards the, once you get past the midway point, I think, as we, as we start to get to the home stretch and get to the end, that's when I think things might start to get a little bit frustrating. And maybe for some people, the setup might be too much, right? You might feel like, there's too much laying the groundwork. And I've said that about things before where, you know, you're spending so much time laying the groundwork and you're not getting me to the meat of the story. Well, what, what I was realizing as I was watching, it was like, this is the meat right here. This is the meat of the story. And the monster is just the thing that needs to be dealt with. So that's why I was like, that's why I felt like the beginning part of this was so good because the meat of the story comes in the setup and the setup. And then once you have that setup, you then have to execute the ending and pay off that good setup. So to me, it was almost like the setup was so good that I was disappointed in how they ended up finishing it out. So that's kind of where I was with that thing. But when it comes to the Boogeyman from 20th Century Studios, if you're a fan of the genre, give it a shot. See what you think. Definitely worth a like. Definitely worth a rental. I would think for sure. So you can get that wherever your digital retailers are. It'll also be available shortly, I'm sure, on Blu-ray and DVD and things like that. If you want your physical media. Too, but that's the boogeyman from 20th Century Studios. I'm gonna be curious to see what you think about this one as well. That's gonna do it for my review of the boogeyman. Up next, how about we talk about a little bit of nerd news and Warner Brothers being Warner Brothers once again? I'll tell you what I mean. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Dave Dastmalchen, creator of Count Crowley, Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just another week of Warner Brothers being Warner Brothers Discovery. It's time for nerd news. And, you know, it just seems like certain companies always seem to make headlines, typically for the wrong reasons. And that's exactly what Warner Brothers Discovery's been doing seemingly all week long. I can go all the way back to the announcement 
where they announced that they were suspending deals with top creators like Mindy Kaling and J.J. Abrams and other top creators. I believe this was NBC News that had this one first. And, of course, this is still going on with the writer's strike and things like that. And, I mean, you can understand that, you know, maybe, you know, J.J. Abrams has underperformed in this deal with Warner Brothers. I can understand that. Mindy Kaling, I mean, you could certainly say the same thing for her in certain respects. And Bill Lawrence was also a part of this, too. He, he was the mind behind Ted Lasso. But, I mean, Mindy Kaling, she she did have the song, this, the she did have, excuse me, the, the show The Sex Lives of College Girls and Velma, which, I mean, you could certainly, <laughs> you there were a lot of opinions about Velma for sure. But J.J. Abrams essentially did basically nothing important. During his time in Warner Brothers, unfortunately, or certainly nothing that was super successful anyway. And it's just, this also comes on the same report from Warner Brothers Discovery from the SEC saying that they've been negatively impacted by the dueling strikes. And they're saying up to $500 million at this point. Gee, if only there was a way that you could have saved money on in this whole thing and, you know, figured something out. So this wouldn't impact you so much. I wonder what you could do. I don't know. Maybe figure out a deal. And I know it's not just Warner Brothers' fault. It's far from just their fault, okay? This goes on all the studios, all of them. And, of course, the American Picture Television Motion whatever the acronym is for the, for the studios that are negotiating. I'm sorry, I, don't, I can't think of it off the top of my head. It's everybody's problem. But there's one company... This seems to be making all the friggin' headlines, and that's Warner Brothers. It's like, guys, why can't you figure something out? Why can't you get out of your own way and stop making headlines? And quite frankly, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav has a lot to do with the stuff that's going on as far as these headlines are concerned. And this dates back even before these recent reports. So remember, this was also a Warner Brothers company that was said, oh, but, you know, we're saving money during these strikes. Well, now you're not. So that that was a quick turn. You can't tell me you went from saving money to losing $500 million in the snap of a finger like that. So which was it? Clearly, there was something that either was falsely reported at one point or somebody was saying something that they didn't exactly understand or something. It's just... I don't get it, man. I like, you know, you're losing money. And at some point you've got to, and and you've got to come back to the table with something better than you've had that that's, and maybe you think you're putting your best deals forward and eventually there's going to be give and take, and this thing's going to get resolved. Okay. It's these strikes are going to get resolved probably one at a time. They're not going to get resolved all at once. But we're, we're starting to get down to crunch time now. This stuff's been going on for a long, long time. And at some point, you just got to cut your losses if you're these studios and start, you know, moving down on your deals a little bit and start getting a little bit more realistic. And even if you don't think the other side's being realistic, somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to blink. And if you think getting people to lose their houses and lose their livelihoods is the way you think you're going to get them to blink, I think they would have done that by now. How long exactly do you think you can hold out before there's nothing to come back to? Let's think about that for a second. You might think you're making a great deal. You might think that you are saving all this money and that, oh, the, and long term, this is our best strategy that we can have. If, if this is your best strategy, 
and you can continue to hemorrhage money like this, then I, you must have a lot more money than we think you do if you can afford to lose this kind of money. But it seems like what you're saying is you can't afford to lose this kind of money. Then get back to the table and make a fair deal because if you don't, there's going to be nothing to come back to for anybody. Not the studios, not the actors, not the writers, nothing. This deal needs to happen and it needs to happen sooner rather than later because it's starting to get a little bit ridiculous and a little bit scary at the same time. But that's not all from Warner Brothers this week. And Mr. Zaslav, as I was as I was talking about, he was talking to the rap and actually said that I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm not going to read this whole thing. Basically, he's saying that Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and DC are underused properties. Let's start with DC for a second, shall we? DC is not an underused property. First of all, Mr. Zaslav fails to remember that you have a publishing arm for DC and there are vast IPs from DC, and you had plenty of them. You just didn't use them properly since in your tenure so far. And, you know, you seem to have a pretty good plan. James Gunn's laid everything out. You That was probably the best decision you've made, although that still, you know, remains to be seen. I love James Gunn. I think he's going to do a great job, but we won't know until this stuff starts coming out, right? And that's going to take time. And by the way, you don't have that kind of time now because you're hemorrhaging money. And by the way... There's this little matter of James Gunn can't write anything right now because of the strike. So there's not, and neither can anybody else. And nobody's performing in these things either. So you're not getting anything done at this point. But you, you, if you have a plan for DC and you think it's underused, there's also the fact that you've maybe been overdoing it a bit. And you could, you could make the argument they're not overdoing it, but they just haven't been doing it well. I mean, they went from being the king's of superhero television to basically having almost nothing in what seemed like the snap of a fingers. I don't know how that happened so quickly and so badly, but you know, that's kind of where we're at right now. They've got this plan for DC. I don't know, man. I hope it works out. I really do as somebody that's loved DC for years, but to say that they're underserved and underused, I think that that's ridiculous. Now the Harry Potter thing, maybe, maybe that's a legit one. And they said, and Zaslav said something like, they haven't done anything Harry Potter in like a decade. Really? Because the Fantastic Beasts movies were in the world of Harry Potter. So clearly you weren't watching those because those have certainly been within the last decade. You've had the Harry Potter game that's come out recently. That was certainly in the last decade. Maybe you don't count that. All right, okay, we could push that to the side and not count that. What do you want to do with Harry Potter? Now, Potterheads are going to tell me that there's, you know, there's more stories to be told and there's spinoffs that you can do, blah, 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 blah. But you can also say that is that something that you really, really want to dig into? Because usually when somebody says that something's underused and they give you more, they give you a lot more. And then you say, well, now it's too much. And now like the argument for Star Wars, right? Well, now you've given me too much. So it's hard to be as much of a fan as I was because now I'm being overserved. And the same thing with Marvel, right? Oh, well, now it's too much. Well, make up your mind. Is it too much or not enough? There's no happy medium there. And that's the thing I'm worried about is that studios can't find that happy medium. I think Lord of the Rings also probably legit, right? Although, again, he says we haven't done anything with Lord of the Rings. Uh, Rings of Power. You just put a series out on on Prime Video, Rings of Power. And it wasn't as successful as you thought it was going to be. And then you got War of Rohirrim, which I believe is the anime that's coming out. And I might have mispronounced that. And I'm sure you'll correct me if I did. Well, guess what? That's delayed now until who knows when. 
So you're doing things. You're just not paying attention to the fact that you're doing things. So now we have to wait for War Rorum. I just looked it up until 2024. So that's, it's not until 2024. So you are doing things. You've got two Lord of the Rings properties that are, gonna, that are, that are being in development right now. You've got supposedly this big reboot of Harry Potter that's going to be coming to max here who knows when. And then you've got this 10-year plan for DC Studios. You're doing stuff. You're just not executing it properly. And that's a huge problem. And if you were executing it property, properly, you'd have stuff that's actually going on while you're working on the other stuff that you're working on. Think about that for a second. Imagine having stuff that you can run while you're waiting for your new plan. Oh, they do. It's called Aquaman The Lost Kingdom, which they released the tra- the teaser for a couple of days ago. And there's going to be a full trailer in another couple of days. But I'm doing this show now, so we're going to talk about it now. I mean, it looks it looks interesting enough. It looks like we're finally going to get the epic battle between Black Manta and Aquaman that we should have gotten all along. Although you, you can make the case that, you know, it had to be Orm in the first movie. I get that. All right. I understand. You're probably right. But we, you, you gave me Black Manta, and then you didn't give me enough was my argument. And Black Manta is my top Aquaman villain. So this is selfishly me talking for stuff that I want because I can do that right now. That's what I wanted. And it looks like that's what we're going to get. We see Black Manta with the trident, which I think was, was huge for me. And then you see, you know, the bioluminescent seahorse that Jason Momoa comes out on as, as Aquaman. And I mean, the action looks legit. But again, this is a movie that probably nobody's going to see because A, it's a lame duck movie. And B, of the Amber Heard factor. We still have no idea how much she's going to be in it or if she's going to be in it at all, or if they've edited her out. I I get the impression that they can't edit her out entirely from this movie, and maybe they don't want to. I don't know. But it's, you know, these things that keep coming out that are either mired in controversy, or people know, well, you know, we might not get anything else from this because because of, you know, James Gunn's plan. So why on earth would we, you know, spend our time doing this? It just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to even watch this movie because it's not like you built up for an epic conclusion like like you know with with Thor Love and Thunder you could you could see that as being a conclusion to the Thor movies right it might not be but you could see that but guess what they've done four of those and Marvel Studios has been around forever you can't give me a second movie and be like yep yeah, oh well that's all she wrote yeah that is uh that is what we're doing no you can't do that people aren't invested enough to care about this unfortunately so again, it's, I'm looking forward to it because I like Aquaman. So I'm going to enjoy it for what it is. But at the same time, I, I, I get it. I really do. I understand that. I understand why people don't want to see it for a multitude of reasons. But now let's shift gears and talk about the actual, something actually outside of Warner Brothers. Because there was one interesting piece of news, and that is that Bad Bunny is dropping out of the Spider-Man spin-off movie from Sony Pictures, El Muerto. And this, I saw this on comicbook.com. I'm not sure if they were the first to report this or not, but you know that movie got pushed back to January 12th of 2024 and then it got pushed back again. Well, actually the next spin-off is going to be Madam Web now, which is going to come out in February uh, on Valentine's Day 2024 because nothing says I love you like Madam Web, but it was Vanity Fair that actually had the story of Bad Bunny dropping out of the Spider-Man spinoff. He didn't say why or what happened or anything like that. He just says, 
that he's out. That's a big star to lose for a movie that, you know, is a fringe movie at best as far as people being interested in it is concerned. And you can understand that, right? There certainly would have been an audience for it. I, I don't I don't doubt that, but the audience would have been there for Bad Bunny. You know, that's one thing like like you can you could talk about wrestling all you want and how, you know, they might be it might be ridiculous at times, but you know, they had Bad Bunny in WWE and it worked out great for them because all the Bad Bunny fans wanted to watch WWE to see Bad Bunny. That worked out. So there would have been people that would have gone to this movie, whether they were interested in Marvel or not, because of Bad Bunny. Whether they were interested in Spider-Man spinoffs or not, Bad Bunny would have drawn that audience in. And now, not so much. So, you could, I don't know if they're going to, at this point, do you scrap it just because he's not in it? Do you try and find somebody to replace him? I guess you probably do, right? But I got to tell you, this script better be real good. And you better bring some major intrigue to this thing because pretty much all these spinoffs that you've tried to do have not worked out very well, have they? I'm holding out hope that Craven the Hunter is going to be good. And Madam Webb's going to be good, but who knows at this point? How could you possibly know that these things are going to be any good or not? So Bad Bunny not being in it, definitely a big deal. And I'm I'm just skeptical as to whether or not this is going to get made or not at this point. And a lot of that has to do with the strike as well. So hopefully things get back to normal soon and we can start talking about fun things that are coming down the pipe instead of having to talk about things that are being canceled and people leaving projects and all this other stuff. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Roshni Chakshi for joining me to talk about the Spirit Glass, which you can now get wherever books are sold. Make sure you follow us online at downandnerdypodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Down and Nerdy on Facebook, at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. Even though I've been doing horrible with social media lately. I'm going to try to do better on that for you guys in the coming weeks. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.